We are going to move into to God's words now. So if you've got a Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are continuing in our series through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're following along with us, you'll know that the book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, a man transformed um, by the gospel and his encounter with Christ. And he wrote this letter um, to a church in the city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. Thank you, John. It's very useful. And a number of months ago, we covered uh, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, where, where Paul kindly, he writes to the church, and he says, I thank my God always for you. Paul was, was grateful for those that he was writing to, but we're going to see today that he didn't um, always agree with those that he was thankful for. And so he speaks into the church, and he speaks with the authority of an apostle this morning, and throughout the last few months, you'll have seen as we go through, through 1 Corinthians that Paul uses a, a different tone in his communication style depending on what he is seeking to communicate. And I think the first verse of our passage today is one of the most kind of striking gut punches probably anyone could give to a church. And probably not everyone in the church was, was happy with the finality of, of Paul's conclusion. Paul is, is direct this morning and he is clear and he doesn't mince his word, words and not necessarily due to apostasy or heresy within the church. What Paul says isn't first and foremost a, a kind of slap in the face of false doctrine. Rather today we find Paul offer a rebuke to the church in regards to what is happening within the church. Usually we a little bit of a hook or an illustration at the beginning of a sermon just to kind of get us, get our, wheat, our feet wet and get you guys um, interested in what we're, we're talking about this morning, but we are just going to kind of hit the gas running today. First Corinthians chapter 11 verse 17 says this, and we will read the whole first verse um, with the passage in a moment. Verse 17 says this, but in the following instructions I do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. Did you get that? When you come together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. Your, your, your coming together doesn't have a positive effect. It doesn't produce a positive outcome. Rather, something negative is the outcome of your gathering. He says, church, it would have been better if you'd all just stayed at home today. Some of you guys are thinking, man, I thought Paul was right with daylight savings. That probably was probably the way to go. Paul tells the church we need to, to, to press pause. We can't keep doing this week on week, month after month, the same thing, Sunday after Sunday, on repeat. This has to stop, and it would be better if we did stop. So let's read our, our passage and see why Paul is on the verge of sending us all home this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, and we'll read down to verse 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, down to verse 34. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink, or eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. God, we come before you uh, this morning. God, we are grateful uh, for your people. We're grateful for the church. God, we thank you that you are committed deeply um, to your people, God. And so as we come and we gather, God, we come um, with expectancy, God, around your word, knowing that you speak into our hearts and into our lives, God. So would you make us humble today, God? Would you make us tender to your spirit? I pray, God, that anything I say today that is not of you would be dismissed and forgotten. I pray that your, your words would be spoken today, God, and you would build us up as a church, God, that we would be leaving today um, one step closer in our journey towards Christ-likeness. Do that uh, to us today as a church, I pray in your name. Amen. What is helpful about the passage that we're studying today is that it organizes itself kind of pretty simply. And in that sense, this morning, this, 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 this message is, is a fairly simple one. In verse 17 to verse 22, Paul, be- Paul begins by articulating the problem that's at hand. And then from verse 23 to 34, he lays out through some theological reflection a path forward. So firstly, we've got the problem. We've already read verse 17 where Paul says, your gathering is not for the better, but for the worse. Then verse 18 reads like this, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And whoever passed this information on to Paul This information did not surprise Paul. He says in the very next verse that to some degree divisions within the church are to be expected. Verse 19 reads like this, there must be some factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Meaning firstly, that in any community where there are different personalities and cultures and perspectives in a church like ours, there's always going to be some degree of disagreement that is just part and partial of what occurs when people come together and different people come together and live in relationship with one another. That's okay. We are not, not all called to be, to be clones. We are intentionally to be a place of home for a spectrum of different kinds of people. With that, there will be a certain degree of disagreement. That is okay. But Paul secondly also seems to be alluding to the fact that factions or divisions in the church are inevitable when it is remembered that not everyone in the church as a welcoming, open-door policy kind of community is truly going to be a follower of Christ. Or not everyone is going to be following Christ in their decisions and their actions, which creates a serious form of division within the church. And Paul here, he is setting up his rebuke. He's kind of getting our attention. 
to say, hey, some of you are, are going to be reading this and you're going to need to do some self-reflection based upon your behavior. Then he says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, if the end of the service today, say during the benediction, after we have come together around the Lord's table, which we're going to do today, if I got up afterwards and said, what we just did, you thought was the Lord's table, but actually it wasn't the Lord's table, you would be probably confused, which is likely the reaction of the church in Corinth as well. Paul, what do you mean that when we come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that we eat? Yes, it is, isn't it? Then in verse 21 to 22, Paul leans in further and he gives us some further context. Verse 21, he writes, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Then he speaks in very classical Greek and says, what? Huh? What are you guys doing? If you remember, a few weeks ago, we considered that communion, the Lord's Supper, is the reenactment of a meal. A meal that can be traced back to its first occurrence in one room around one table with one man, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, telling his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And one thing to note is that when Jesus had this first Lord's Supper with his disciples, firstly, it would have been a Jewish Passover meal, so that has rich meaning in its, of, and of itself, which we won't be able to time to get into today, but it also was simply a real meal. Or at minimum, the Lord's Supper was part of a real meal. In the early church, they took this seriously. They, they integrated what we call communion, the partaking of the bread and the cup alongside a larger meal together, likely very similar to how we as a church have potluck together. They did this exactly, they did, and how they did this, we don't exactly know how they distinguished between the bread and the cup and the rest of the meal, we're not sure, although they were very practically following the example of Christ. But there were some problems arising And what we need to remember is that the culture in Corinth would have been built around a deeply divided class system. Questions of whether you were a slave or whether you were free, whether you were rich or whether you were poor. And these class distinctions in society would have created distinct social boundaries as to literally what tables you could or you could not eat at. And this class system was working its way into the church. Verse 21 says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, meaning at minimum those with plenty to eat, maybe even those who are actually being placed at tables with finer food and finer wine than other tables were going ahead and eating without intentional consideration of others. When Paul writes, one goes hungry and another gets drunk, I don't think it necessarily means people were literally getting drunk, but maybe they were, but what Paul is really highlighting is two extremes. On one hand, some within the church are being treated and treating themselves as if they are of great importance, and others are being treated as if they are of great insignificance. After Paul says, what? In verse 22, he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? Meaning that even though we all have a responsibility before God in our private lives to enact lifestyles that are consistent with how God calls us to live, 
Paul here more specifically is pointing out beyond that there is also a special, unique responsibility to consider, particularly when we gather how our lifestyles may be making other brothers and sisters in Christ feel. Paul says, I'm not taking issue right now with the food that you eat right now. I'm not taking issue with the kind of social environment that you have become accustomed to or the designer clothes that you wear or the vacations that you take. That's maybe another conversation, but I'm taking issue right now with the degree to which you are flaunting your wealth and your lifestyle in the presence of other Christians and consequently making them feel humiliated. That's Paul's rebuke. That's what this passage is about. And so we'd be amiss to not take a moment and consider what this means for us as a a church. A few weeks back, we thought about empathy, the decision to allow the story of another to run through our veins. And for this to take place when we come to church, when we come to small group, the question is, do we slow down enough to truly see the person or the people that we're talking to or sitting beside? And this goes in many different directions. Are we talking to someone that is single? Are we talking to a parent who's exhausted? Are we talking to someone with our kids? Are we talking to somebody of color? Are we talking to someone who's speaking a second language? Are we talking to someone who was not born here? Do we make room in the room for the circumstances of another? Do we allow considerations of another determine the words that we say or the lifestyles that we project? Are you at the center of your own orbit? You know, it's my experience that people are, are good at, at faking it. Putting on a smile, putting a smile on their face to fake assimilation, to fake belonging, and we are fooled because on the inside they are wondering why no one is noticing them or considering them or for, before a Sunday with a smile on their face is their last Sunday. And so in verse 23, Paul chooses to give a summary of the meaning behind the Lord's Supper to demonstrate afresh why the church's behavior in Corinth is so inconsistent with the very message and the meaning conveyed through the Lord's table. And what's interesting in what we read in these verses is that they are Paul's articulation of Christ's words spoken at the first Lord's table, the first Lord's Supper. In reading these verses, we are reading the beginning of a a tradition as it was in the process of being handed down through the early church. These verses in 1 Corinthians were actually written earlier than the Gospels. And so in verse 23 to 26, we see the early formation of a kind of liturgy in which we still habitually walk ourselves through when we partake of communion, just as the early church did. Verse 23 to verse 27 is a retelling of what we today keep retelling. And it starts in verse 23, where it says, The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. The opening words of this liturgy make clear that the early church, that yes, they understood that it was the Romans that crucified Christ, they understood it was the religious leaders that were instrumental in his death, but what is highlighted at the Lord's table is that the final trigger in bringing about the crucifixion of Christ was a personal betrayal by one considered a friend of Jesus. And in this sense, the early church, in their sin, identified themselves with Judas. 
When we come to the Lord's table, we come, yes, as friends of Jesus, but we recognize through our repentance that we each have betrayed the one who calls us friend. Then what ties verse 24 and 25 together is the key word, remembrance. We have established the betrayal, and now there is something to remember. Verse 24, it says, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then in verse 25, In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance, we take the bread, representing Christ's body, given for us. In remembrance, we take drink the cup, representing the new covenant in his blood. Now, for us, we are potentially not used to correlating remembering something with an action. We probably, at least initially, think of remembering something as simply a mental activity. Remembering is just conjuring a memory. We don't think of remembering as a physical activity, and yet we see throughout Scripture there is the expectation that what, that what we are what what we are remember when what we are remembering is paired with a physical reenactment. There is a greater depth of remembrance. What we are remembering begins to move from our heads and to sink into our bones, into our being. We see this still today to some degree and why it's meaningful to, to physically visit somebody's grave side or why we physically fly a flag at half-mast on the anniversary of a tragedy. There is poignancy, a depth in the physical act of remembrance. So the question is, what are we seeking to sink into our bones at the Lord's table? Let me give you these quickly. There's three things. Verse 24, at the Lord's table, we are engaging in an act of remembrance that the bread represents Christ's body given for you. When you come to the front and you take the bread, you aren't taking somebody else's piece of bread. You're taking a piece of bread that is yours. Not because our deacons wrote your initials on the back of it, but because Jesus did. When you take the bread, you are bringing to remembrance that on the cross, Jesus didn't hang with a general sense of what would hang with a general sense of what he was doing. He died with a mind that holds the happenings of the whole world at once. And he died giving his omnipotent attention to the millions who were on his mind, one of whom when you take the bread, you remember was you. Your story, your life, your sin, your shame, his love for you was on his mind when he gave his body for you. Number one, at the Lord's table, we are engaging in an act of remembrance that the bread represents Christ's body given for you. Number two, in verse 25, at the Lord's table, we are remembering that the cup represents the new covenant in Christ's blood. A covenant is, is a mutual agreement. It's a stronger word than agreement that refers to an agreement that has been made by two parties. A marriage isn't just an agreement. It's a, it's a covenant between two people before God. And for the Israelites in the Old Testament, their agreement, their covenant with God was dependent upon them continually going to the temple to sacrifice animals as a payment for their sins. This was how they kept themselves right in right standing before God. 
And this was something that they had to keep doing. The blood of these animals had a potency that was not strong enough to continually cover their sins. And that was the old covenant. It was a method of gaining right standing before God, but it only lasted until they sinned again, which was probably on their way home from the temple. The old covenant was like software that needed an update, but it was helpful in revealing the human predicament. And so when Paul refers to the new covenant, he is referring to a new agreement that does not involve the continual sacrifice of animals. Rather, the new agreement is that the covenant maker, the maker of the universe, would come and put on flesh and blood and that he would become a lamb. And in doing so, he would sacrifice himself once, just once, and once would be enough. The potency of the blood of Jesus was strong enough to make payment for our sins, past, present, and forever, to wash us clean from our iniquities, to lift us up from the gutter of our darkest shame, to purchase us a position of honor in the royal family of God, to take what is Christ's and make it our own, to grant us immortality, to leave death dead, to see Satan slayed, to turn the world backwards on its axes, to make Eden not the past but the future, to instigate the reign of a new kingdom where the dead are raised, where the last are first, where the least are the greatest, the potent power of God's love written in blood was planned as an outworking of God the Father's predestined sovereignty, accomplished through the Son's obedience to the point of death on the cross, and signed and sealed by the indwelling and indestructible power of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is not an agreement between two, like the Old Testament between us and God. No, the new covenant is an agreement between three between the united forces of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to say, we know you cannot keep up your end of the deal, whether your sin keeps coming to your mind or you begin to lose your mind. So we've decided between the three of us, it is up to us. It is we who are signing in our blood for you. That is the new covenant. Church, do you know how many people, do you know how many followers of Christ at the end of their lives slip away into death in their final days, in their final months, in their final years, unconscious of the life that they've lived and the decisions that they've made. And do you know how many of God's children are lost? Do you know how many that he forgets? None. Zero. Church, when you dip that piece of bread that has your name on it into that cup this morning, you're dipping it into that which represents the most potently powerful substance that has ever existed in the material world, and you are claiming the power of Christ's blood over your life and your death and your eternal future. So what are we seeking to sink deep into our bones at the Lord's table. Number one, verse 24, at the Lord's table, we are engaging in an act of remembrance that the bread represents Christ's body given for you. Number two, verse 25, at the Lord's table, we are engaging in an act of remembrance that the cup represents the new covenant written, signed, and sealed with the power of Christ's blood. And finally, number three, verse 26, at the Lord's table, we are engaging in an act of remembrance that our very coming together in an act of itself, in and of itself, is a proclamation of what Christ's death has accomplished. When we partake in communion, we acknowledge two elements, the bread and the cup. But you know, there are arguably three elements to make up the Lord's Supper. 
What's the third? We are. Some of you might remember that when COVID was happening, there were a lot of pastors geeking out around whether it was possible to have communion when we weren't gathered in person together and saying you're kind of doing it if you're doing it at home by yourself, by yourself, but you're not also really doing it if you're doing it by yourself. And I'm not really getting into that, but it's very similar to what Paul says in this passage, except in verse 22, he says, even when the church in Corinth does come together in person like we are now, it still doesn't mean that they were truly partaking in the Lord's table. Why? The emphasis in verse 26 is that at the Lord's table there is a proclamation occurring that is being proclaimed in unison. We are each declaring a part of the message and meaning of the Lord's table. And so the Lord's table is only truly the Lord's table when the unity being proclaimed is a unity that is also being enacted. When we are not a people reconciled with one another at the Lord's table, we cannot be the third element. It doesn't matter if we are physically together. It matters if we are relationally together. An unreconciled people partaking in communion would be like coming up to the front to find that there is only a cup but there's no bread or there's no bread, or there's just a cup, or that there's simply nothing. Our love for one another, our consideration for one another, our forgiveness offered to each other before we come to the Lord's table carries the weight of whether the Lord's table is actually is the Lord's table. Why? Because just as the bread and the blood are symbolic elements proclaiming what we will one day fully be, sinless and healed and restored. Also, us being a reconciled people for a moment in time around the table is a key symbolic element proclaiming what else we will one day fully be. That we will one day be a people at peace. Knowing that the meaning and the message of the Lord's Supper is at stake is why Paul uses such strong words in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Meaning, to put it mildly, there is a way that we can partake in communion that diminishes who we are actually gathered to remember and what Christ came to accomplish. So Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. These are strong words and they're about to get stronger. There is a, an examination that is to occur, to occur in our lives at the Lord's table and what we are to examine is whether we are discerning the body. So what does this mean to examine whether we are discerning the body? It means to take a good look around at the body, the body being the church. And Paul's simply saying, take a look around the room and tell me, can you discern for yourself? Are you treating, how are you treating 
your brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you consider that for a minute? Can you examine your behavior for a minute? Are there brothers and sisters that are being treated as insignificant, unseen, unconsidered? And you might say, nice question, Phil. I'm going to write that down in my notes. How am I treating other brothers and sisters in Christ? How is my behavior making other people feel? Verse 30 tells us, coming to the Lord's table, ignorant of truly taking time to wrestle with that question is the reason why some in Corinth have become ill, why some have become sick, and why some have died. Then Paul clarifies, but if we judge for ourselves, that is, if we do the work of discerning our behavior and make the appropriate changes, we will not be judged. Verse 31 says, but if we are judged, it will be for our own good, for our own discipline. And then with verse 33 and 34, our passage ends with some very practical instructions. Paul says, hey, if the fancy food that some of you are used to eating is causing others to feel humiliated, just eat it at home. But when you come together, wait for each other, which is beautiful connotations not only of waiting each other waiting on each other as in servants maybe even in a restaurant serving one another a meal and considering the needs of one another during that meal but also through the words wait on one another Paul is saying if you have not reconciled with someone this morning to wait to wait and to do so to reconcile before you come to the Lord's table. And that might mean going to speak to someone even right now as the music starts before we come to the Lord's table. But if you do choose to partake in the Lord's table and find hope this morning, and even if you choose to not partake for whatever reason, I want you to find hope this morning that as we come together as the church that truly does care for one another, because I've seen it, and we come together as a church that truly does work towards seeking that everyone is seen and known, remember, as a reconciled people for a moment in time around the table this morning, we are enacting what we will one day even more fully be, a people at peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that it is there at the cross that we find reconciliation, not only with you, but with one another. God, that you make a way, God, that we will be one, that we would be one as your people, and that we'd be a one centered around your cross, giving you glory and praise with gratitude for what you have done in our lives. God, I pray that you would make us a people of humility. God, I pray, God, that when we have disagreements, when we have conflicts, God, that we would be quick to reconcile. God, that we would be quick to forgive, knowing that your glory is at stake as a people divided, God. So God, I pray, God, that you would make us one, more and more one as a church, the people who come into our church, people who see us in the neighborhood, would see us as the people who are bound together by the love of Jesus. Do that amongst us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.